Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash ZNK. This program has been supported by a grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Welcome to this peer voice activity on standards of care in HIV. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Chloe Orkin and Ms. Bakita Casada. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, my name is Chloe Orkin from Queen Mary University of London in the UK. Welcome to this activity on improving quality of life for people living with HIV. I'm delighted to be joined by my fantastic colleague, Ms. Bakita Casada from the University of Oxford. She's a qualitative researcher in the Medical Sociology and Health Experiences Research Group. Welcome, Bakita. Thanks for having me. What we're trying to get at today is thinking beyond the obvious treatment goals of virological suppression. We know that we have no cure currently available, and we all focus on that goal of suppressing the viral load. We also need to be thinking beyond side effects and drug interactions and thinking about the long-term commitment that living with HIV actually is. And this means thinking about quality of life and all aspects of the person's relationship with healthcare. Vikita, how would you characterize the experience for people after diagnosis, beginning the treatment journey? How do you think this has changed in recent years? I think one of the biggest changes when we're thinking about life after diagnosis is access to treatment. Depending, of course, where you are in the world, having hope that there will be a long life after a diagnosis. Another significant change is the introduction of a test and treat policy. That is shortly after diagnosis, being given medication that you'll then take for the rest of your life. I was diagnosed pre-test and treat policy. And that meant that I had an opportunity to really come to terms with my diagnosis before I was advised to start taking medication. Now, because of test and treat, I think it's even more important to think about the post-counselling that happens after a diagnosis. Those are such powerful points. As a clinician, the take-home point summarising some of that is that we used to think a lot about pre test counselling when I was training, what we have to be thinking about in an era of test and treat is actually that the support may not be pre but post. The time of it needs to move. Do you think things have actually improved since test and treat? I do think that things have improved, but I think it's important when there are conversations happening between people living with HIV and clinicians telling us that we will live a long life isn't always enough. This is when we are talking about quality of life. It's not just about living a long life. That life should also be worth living. There are different things that need to be considered, whether it's side effects from meds, worries, how people will respond to our HIV diagnosis. What is a full life as an HIV positive person actually going to look like? And that's important to consider in post-diagnosis counselling. It really is about thinking about the whole journey and moving beyond virological suppression. Bakita, we've got these UNAIDS targets and the question is, how do they interface with the discussion we're having on quality of life and whether we're doing enough? What do you think? 
Initially, the targets were the 90, 90, 90. So getting 90% of people living with HIV diagnosed, knowing that they're HIV positive and of them 90% on treatment and of them undetectable or virologically suppressed. After that, there was more of a consideration of quality of life. And this is known as the fourth 90. But I do think it's really important to think of it as a continuum. I believe that there's a certain level of quality of life that is needed before getting a diagnosis, before being able to adhere and become virologically suppressed. And it shouldn't just be thought of as the final frontier. Now it's increased to the 95, 95, 95. And this is a good thing. But I also think it's important to think about who is not included in the 10, 10, 10 or the 5, 5, 5. It's important to think about not just achieving these goals across cities, regions or countries, but also thinking about it across different key populations and different groups to make sure that the most marginalised people living with HIV are not being left behind. You said that so clearly that I don't think that I can possibly try and summarise it more succinctly. Thank you for that. Do you think that healthcare professionals and people with HIV are speaking the same language? It's a big question and it's sometimes tricky to answer. One of the things that we need to get better at is recognising the autonomy and agency of people living with HIV, that we deserve to be informed about our options. The priorities of a cis woman living with HIV or a trans woman living with HIV or a man who has sex with men in one part of the world compared to another, these will be different priorities. Speaking the same language isn't necessarily just about healthcare provider and person living with HIV, but understanding that different languages might be spoken amongst your diverse population of patients. Thank you. There's not one language and whatever language we're speaking, we should be empowering people's agency. If we're not doing that, then we're not doing our jobs properly. If you were to give me a tip, what would the tip be? I think it's important to meet us where we are. In terms of our clinical appointments, it would be great to check understanding with the people living with HIV that you're supporting, where it is possible to update us on latest advancements in terms of our treatment options, crucially understanding how taking our treatment or potentially not being able to adhere to our treatment fits into our lives and day-to-day living. Those are certainly very practical tips that one can take away, meeting people where they are and making sure that we continue to update what we're offering are certainly things that are translatable and that all of us can understand, regardless of who we're communicating with, to really stretch across to meet the real person that's in front of us. Talking with people regularly gives the opportunity to reinforce things that we feel are helping to enforce good outcomes, supporting people in in what they're doing, as well as uncovering barriers to what might be preventing people from managing to take their treatments and would allow us to understand what else we could be offering, potentially to facilitate access to other opportunities, as you said, in terms of modernizing therapies. Conversations that may seem brief may actually turn out to be very significant. There's data to suggest that if healthcare professionals mention smoking, that that is a very powerful intervention in someone's decision making. But we may not realize how important what we say actually is. 
I agree that it's important to bring things up because not everybody will feel comfortable in bringing it up themselves. I think that that will be influenced by many different things. Some people living with HIV may not want to feel burdensome, so may not bring up certain things. There are also power dynamics at play that might mean that some people feel more empowered or less comfortable in bringing up things within their clinical appointment. So we've got race, we've got migration status age, trans status. There are a lot of things that might impact some of those conversations that are happening within a clinical setting and building trust between the person and the clinician. Bringing up conversations, it actually opens up the door to say it's okay for us to speak about this and that you're inviting that conversation. If I were to ask what an individualised approach to managing HIV looks like, Would it be meeting people where they are and inviting conversations? Yes, I agree with that. And also actually knowing about our lives. One of the things that I love about my HIV clinical team is that they know what's going on in my life. I meet with them twice a year, just twice a year, and they're able to reference conversations that I've had before. They ask me about work. They ask me about relationships. They ask me about a whole host of things that I would consider removed from HIV. It's important because for me, it shows that they're seeing the whole person. It always has to be a joint conversation about how I'm going to manage my HIV. I've had appointments about changing my meds because the side effects aren't quite working, about future aspirations, about my understanding of what the HIV medication is actually doing and why it's helpful. Whatever steps are taken within a clinical appointment, it needs to feel like it's a partnership and the person with HIV knows exactly why it's happening or why it's not happening, depending on what the discussion is. Thank you, Bakita, for putting it so clearly. In summary, achieving this individualized goal involves the whole person. It involves meeting the person where they are, helping them to create agency, a true understanding of what they're saying. Our role is to facilitate that understanding, to listen, and to provide information around medical advances that might help a person to achieve some of the therapy goals. Is there anything that you'd add to that summary, Bakita? I think it's an excellent summary. The only thing I would also add is also being willing to revisit conversations, understanding that as life moves on, something that may have been true a few years ago may no longer be true anymore. That's an extremely important point and thank you for adding it. Thank you for the very fruitful discussion and thank you to the audience for listening. It's really been a great pleasure to speak with you as ever. Thank you, Chloe. Hello, this is Chloe Orkin from Queen Mary University of London in London, UK, and welcome to this activity on improving quality of life for people living with HIV. We've just talked about the importance of individualizing care for people living with HIV. In the second part of this activity, we'll take a closer look at how we can improve standards of care for HIV. One of the good things is that the days of taking many, many pills are over for almost everybody. It's possible to achieve durable suppression with a single pill once a day, but taking pills is not for everybody. And there are good and compelling reasons why taking treatments is not something that everybody can do. These reasons may be physical, they may be around memory or dementia, they may be around swallowing, but they may also be about the effects of stigma and how that affects people's ability to make daily good decisions around oral therapy. 
That's why it's wonderful that we now have our first long-acting injectable therapy, which is something that can open up possibilities and reduce treatment days from 365 to just six per year with a two-monthly injectable therapy. This option is represented by the long-acting therapy cabotegravir and wolpivirine. People still experience fear of disclosure and stigma, and oral tablets represent a daily reminder of the fact that people are living with HIV. For some, this is very painful, and there are some very real fears of disclosure and being identified as having HIV, and this can still have catastrophic consequences. People also still forget their tablets, and it's important to keep improving the pipeline and to release people with HIV to have as many options as possible. The existing long-acting treatment, as I've said, is cabotegravir privirine. This is a regimen for people who are already virologically suppressed or on stable treatment who have no resistance or suspected resistance and no previous failure with agents from the NNRTI or integrase inhibitor class. We would also consider it for people who have difficulty swallowing pills who prefer not to take oral tablets. People with hepatitis B should not take this regimen because it does not protect them against hepatitis B. This is not a regimen for people who are planning a pregnancy or who are currently pregnant because we don't know data on two drug regimens in pregnancy. If there are any contraindications in terms of other medications, this would be a consideration. There's a suite of very large phase three trials testing long-acting cabotegravir in different populations. It's been compared against an oral comparator in Flare and Atlas one monthly, and it's been compared one monthly against two monthly therapy in the ATLAS 2M study. And in terms of outcomes across all of these studies, what has been shown is that for the oral therapy comparator studies, once monthly cabotegravir pivirine has been shown to be non-inferior, so works exactly as well as you would expect against oral comparator therapy. In terms of safety endpoints, there were actually very few adverse events or side effects with the injectable treatment, and it's generally very well tolerated. There are injection site reactions, and they tend to occur for around three days, tend to resolve within seven days, and tend to be very mild. Very few people across the entire program have actually discontinued due to injection site reactions. Because of all this data, these drugs have now come into international guidelines and are recommended as options to switch people who are virologically suppressed. So this is very exciting news, and we can really say that the tide has turned. There was a very strong preference in the trials for a long-acting therapy versus the oral comparator. For those people that were on the two-monthly versus one-monthly comparison, they preferred two-monthly injections over one-monthly injections. That's a very quick summary of the data around long-acting cabotegravir or There is a pipeline of drugs in development and drugs that have been recently developed. I'm going to start off by talking about the drug ibelizumab, which has actually already been licensed. It's an entry inhibitor and it's directed at the CD4 post-attachment inhibitor. It's been approved in some countries, and it tends to be given to people who have very few treatment options to boost an existing combination. And there's been some good data to show that when used with other agents, this has been a very helpful to people who have very few treatment options left. The other agent is the drug albuviratide, and this is a fusion inhibitor. It's been given orally, but it's also being developed as a drug that can be injected. The third drug I would mention is lenacapavir, which is a first-in-class capsid inhibitor. So this is a new class that we've never seen before, and this drug works every six months. 
what we've seen for ibilizumab is some very good activity for highly treatment experienced people who have very few options. You can see some very good virological responses depending on how you give the drug, whether you give it every four weeks or whether you give it every two weeks. Albiviratide is a drug that you can give as an injectable combination with other agents. This drug, which is actually already licensed as an oral therapy in China, in China it's been tested together with lopinavir as an alternative to nucleoside. Most recently at the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections in 2022, there was data presented on the capsid inhibitor lenacapavir. The Calibrate study was for people who have never taken treatment before, so first-line therapy. And this was an exploratory study looking at four different arms with a comparator of Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF. Excellent outcomes in terms of efficacy at the early endpoints at week 54. There was a single case of resistance in this study. It's important to recognize that resistance can occur even in first-line therapy when you are using this agent. This speaks to the point that with uh, long-acting therapies, as we've seen with cabotegravir or piverine, the efficacy is excellent, but people can fail with resistance. And we've seen this now also with lenacapavir. The drug was very safe and there were very few discontinuations. There were very few adverse events, although there were some injection site reactions, which were short-lived, mainly in the form of nodules. There were other data presented on lenacapavir on the highly treatment experience Capella study. And this was looking at lenacapavir in people who had very few treatment options. With this study, they expanded the entry criteria and allowed people over the age of 12 or 35 kilos to go into the study, which is something unusual in that generally these studies are confined only to people over the age 18. What they found in this trial is that there were excellent outcomes in excess of 80% of people in this highly treatment experience group actually managed to suppress and there were very gratifying increases in CD4 counts, particularly in those who had the lowest CD4 counts to start with. There were very few discontinuations related to injection site reactions. There were a handful of cases of resistance. The freedom of long-acting regimens is probably going to come at a cost in that we may well see a little bit more resistance than we're used to seeing with the oral therapy. In summary, I would say that long-acting therapies may well be the next phase in our journey, but they are a paradigm shift. We're having to learn to use them in terms of what their advantages are relative to oral therapies, the learning points potentially around resistance and virological failure, but also around implementation. We're going to have to work out how to change our clinics and our healthcare structures to deliver completely different therapies to what we've ever delivered before. This is going to require infrastructural change and planning. It's important that we rise to this challenge because this may well help people to avoid stigma and offer flexibility where currently there is none. The uptake of this drug will depend on how well we are able to morph and adapt our infrastructure to cope with this new and exciting emergent therapy. What I would say to people living with HIV is there is a pipeline, there's lots of drugs, lots of different mechanisms of action, and watch this space. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.